your Facebook Live session. I am your host, Arunjit Ratan, and today we have Lynnet Burning, founder of Blue Water Communications, with us for a chat on everything PR. Lynnet comes with over two decades of experience in the field of PR and specializes in strategic PR and marketing for museums, architecture, design, performing arts, and heritage destinations. Very unique article. She also has a rare dual professional certification. She's received accreditation from PRSA, an achievement earned by only 5% of PR practitioners. And she's earned a strategic planning professional designation from the Association of Strategic Planning. That's not all. Lynette also serves on the board of members, a board of trustees for the Uni University of Toledo Alumni Association, and has served as president of the Northwest Ohio chapter of Public Relations Society of America and was named Outstanding Alumina by the University of Toledo Department of Communication. And this month, she also takes over the reins of the PRBI network as president. So let's add her on and hear from her. Hi, Lynette. Hi, Taranjeet. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm great. And I want to start by saying thank you to you. Um, both for organizing this and for agreeing to be vice president of PR Boutiques International. Your, uh, your energy and intelligence are just going to take us forward. So thank you. Thank you. I, I think it's going to be a, a fun year. I think so. I think between the two of us, we can uh, really get a lot done. And we have a awesome. great executive committee and a great board. So let's start uh, with Blue Water, right? Uh, Blue Water has a niche in the museum field as well as architecture, performing arts, and destinations. I mean, it's a very unique vertical. I remember when I met you for the first time, I was, you know, way surprised that somebody actually did uh, specialize in this uh, niche. So how did you decide to take this up? I'm still a little surprised myself, and it's been 14 years. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can tell you that I started my museum career at the Toledo Museum of Art in the late 90s. I was their communications manager and I absolutely loved it. Every single day was interesting. There was always something challenging, something new, something beautiful, something inspiring. And I loved the work. And then uh, my career took me into a PR firm and I loved that work. But uh, PR firms, as you know, they tend to have a specialty. And I wanted to do museum work, and the agencies that I worked at had already determined specialties. Right. And so loved PR, loved museum work, and I really wanted to marry those two things. And so in 2006, took that leap and started Blue Water Communications. And as you said, uh, we have narrowed our niche to museums architecture and architecture can take a couple of different forms. We have um, an architecture firm in Columbus, Ohio, that is our client. And then we also work on a lot of architectural projects for museums, uh, performing arts and destinations can also be a broad category for us. Uh, sometimes it is a destination that behaves like a museum, but is not. For instance, we have a botanical garden, Selby Gardens in Sarasota, Florida, and they are really a museum of plants and their structure and the way they do business is very similar to a museum. And so it, it feels very natural to us to work with them. They also do art exhibitions related to plants once a year. So that's a great fit. Um, we also do work with destinations where you might travel on vacation like Kissimmee, Florida. Um, so our areas of expertise are really narrow, but uh, also give us a broad opportunity for interesting work. Awesome. It's fascinating. Um, I, I think you're the first person that I met who specializes in this vertical. And now we have museum clients in 11 states. So um, once we clearly defined that niche and said, this is who we are and this is what we do best. Um, and that is really a PRBI success story because we made that decision based on knowledge that I gained from this organization. Um, we were off and running. It, it just grew exponentially once we really clearly defined that niche. Awesome. So uh, briefly take me through the timeline of museum PR, you know, starting in March when the museum started to close and how, how, how has it been for you? Sure. Um, 
I will tell you, it happened very, very quickly. Um, one of the things that we do with our clients, if I can sort of back up a step, is we do crisis communications for museums. So we work in partnership with our clients and help them to draft crisis plans. And so we have always said to them, your crises will arrive in three categories, generally. Um, act of nature, hurricane, flood, wildfire, um, act of human, damage to artwork, damage to your building, things like that, and active management. Something happens with a member of your executive team or perhaps your board. So active nature, active human, active management. And if you plan for those three, you've got all your bases covered. And then March rolled around and we started to get a phone call from a client saying, there's no active you know, pandemic in this plan. And um, they were right, there was not. And, and it happened so quickly. So for us, our timeline, um, as I said, we have clients in 11 states, so there's a lot of moving parts. And I traveled, um, Blue Water is based in Florida, and I traveled to Ohio to the Toledo Museum of Art at the end of February, and things seemed normal. Um, I'm already kind of... Um, prepared traveler. So I already do the hand sanitizer and the wipe down the tray. And I sometimes wear a mask when I fly and I have for years because I fly a lot and I don't want to get sick. Um, so, you know, I was cautious, but no more cautious than I usually am. Uh, so when on that trip came home, um, Jody, who works for Blue Water, traveled to Arkansas the first full week of March. And we were cautious. Um, but not alarmed. And while she was gone in the course of that trip, things started to close down. It happened that quickly. And it started for our clients with their public programs and their education classes, things where people were gathering. They said, you know, we'll just cancel this program for 50 people because that seems like a bad idea. And that was the first week programs, classes, things like that started to close down. And by the next week, um, almost all of our clients were closed. It happened that quickly. And state by state, um, governors made decisions about closings. And so it was fast and we were closed down. And some of our clients, you know, they're over 100 years old and this has only happened to them one other time and it was the pandemic of 1918. Um, right. So historically, museums don't close. They'll close for a day for a blizzard or foul weather or something like that. But um, this sort of sustained closure just is not in their histories. Um, so they had to move quickly. They closed down. They The staff moved to working from home. And they needed to figure out how to have a digital presence. Now, some of our clients were already working in that space really efficiently. So that shift and that pivot was less of a challenge. Others were not. And so immediately they had to um, figure out how can we still serve our community in this digital realm. And so first things first, most of our museums are really um, founded in education. So they, they leaned on education quickly and they started offering things um, like art experiences that parents could do with their kids that were suddenly at home. Um, so that was some of the first thing was education. What can we do for parents with children? Um, what sort of creative experiences? How can we highlight our collections? We had nice. museums that had just opened traveling exhibitions or exhibitions that they had organized days before they had to close. And as, as you know, exhibitions are planned for years. For years, they had worked on loans and agreements and PR, um, and, and it was closed, and some of them had been open for days and had to close down and, and really will not be seen. Um, so it was just an incredible pace of trying to figure out how to get in that digital presence so that they could continue to propel their mission forward, um, even though people could not physically visit their museums. Understood. So, um, basic question, right? Uh, wouldn't a pandemic fall under an act of nature? Because I, un if I am to understand correctly, the U.S. 
you know, does get a lot of natural disasters, right? The storms and the tornadoes are something that are spoken about in global news. Or was this an unprecedented, uh, you know, event that never really was considered? If I had to pick one of the three that it was closest to, it would be active nature. Um, however, active nature generally is weather-driven, and weather-driven events tend to be brief. So if we, for instance, in Florida, um, when Hurricane Irma came through in, I don't know, 2017, I think it was, and uh, we had a client here that needed, we had several clients here that needed to close because there was debris everywhere, there was some damage that needed to be taken care of, but the closure was, you know, if I recall, maybe 8, 10, 12 days. Um, and it was a closure of, we have a lot of home fronds to clean up and some structural damage. It was not a complete shift in how they're going to do business. People could still go to the office. The groundskeeping crew could still work. So if I had to pick one of the three, it's closest to active nature. But there's also this bit of uh, unpredictability that comes with active man and fear that comes with active management. Um, so it, it was really um, kind of a combination of all three. Hmm. Interesting. So I'm assuming your clients would have benefited, benefited with your dual degree at this point of time. And your majority of your time would have been devoted to getting them online? Um, so yes, really we help them with the strategy around their PR. They, they Our museums have incredible in-house teams. Um, and that's really one of the things we look for when we choose a client as they choose us, um, is we do at Blue Water, we do our best work when we're paired with an extraordinary in-house team. So for the most part, they, they, they picked up that ball and ran with it. It was, um, helping them with some of the PR and messaging around the closure. We didn't know how long our clients would be closed. So some of them in mid-March were announcing they were going to be closed until the end of March and actually opened at the beginning of July. And yeah. at this moment in time, all but two of our clients are open. Um, two are still closed. And we anticipate they will possibly close again. I mean, we're prepared for them to close again based on the decisions of their governors. Right. So, you know, you've been in business for around 14 years now, right? Working with museums. Does anything still surprise you? Ah, I am surprised every day in our job. And I think that's why the team at Blue Water, we're, we're happy in our jobs. Um, one thing I'll say about the team is we have all worked in museums and in the arts. So um, we have worked at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. We have worked at the Toledo Museum of Art, the University of Michigan Museum of Art. Um, we have worked in performing arts centers. So we understand the arts from the inside, which is a, a fresh view, I think, for an agency. Um, and even with that said, even with 20 years in museums, I am still surprised by things all the time. Um, one of the things that surprises me, um, and I am sort of living it at this moment, but I lived it once before, is that at times of crisis, um, people turn to museums uh, as though they are sacred spaces. And right. I saw that at 9-11, um, that... Um, after 9-11, museums had a, a surge of attendance. Um, people felt uh, frightened and vulnerable and uh, were seeking beauty and or were seeking um, something that could help them articulate their pain. So they, they really went to museums uh, as you would go to a sacred space. And that surprised me then. And surprises me now and delights me. I, I am thrilled that people respond to museums in that way. The hard thing when COVID hit was their desire to be in that space 
was not able to be met because of the nature of the pandemic. So they could still engage with the collections at their favorite museum and at museums they've never even been to um, because of this digital space. And right. so I think um, that delights and inspires me that at moments of crisis, and this is just a human nature, um, yeah. humans like to create and express their pain and their joy and their love. And that is why after moments of tragedy, we always see a season of incredible art come from that. Um, and I imagine that we will again. I imagine that following 2020 will be a fruitful decade, maybe, um, of art creation of people responding to this moment. So that surprises me. Um, it surprises me in a sad way that people um, in research that we do still tend to perceive that museums are expensive, that it's something that is inaccessible for their families to do because there is a cost associated with it that is prohibitive. And many of our clients, um, three quarters of our clients are free museums. So let's start there. You can go anytime you want, you can take all your family um, and it's a free experience. And even if they are museums that have a ticket, uh, the ticket in comparison to other things you might do with your family is quite parallel to a movie, to other experiences that you would do. Um, and ticketed museums often have, you know, in the evenings, they might be half price. They may have free Sundays. Uh, they'd look for ways to encourage families to come at a very low cost point. And so I think people could look within half an hour of where they live and find either a free museum or a museum that offers a very affordable um, ticket or a museum that offers a discounted ticket at certain times of the week. And so that, that you know, I love to go to museums and watch families interact with art because children love art. They don't burden themselves with trying to figure out what it means. They don't burden themselves with, you know, is the brush stroke fine or rough? They just look at it and say, I like that. And if you say why, they may say because it's red or because it has a dog in it or, you know, they just respond so naturally to it. And uh, I love to watch that. It's fun just for us at Blue Water to just sit in a museum and watch people engage with art. It, it inspires us. That's wonderful. I can I mean, talk about this all day is what you're going to find. <laughs> I'm, I'm fond of museums myself and I understand uh, where you're coming from. You know, uh, it's, it's amazing watching people interact with it. And it's it's so knowledgeable at the same point of time. I mean, for the price of a movie, you could possibly spend the whole day at a museum. Right. And, yeah. um, you know, at this moment, again, it, uh, museums are a lightning rod for change. And that's exciting. And that continues to surprise me that through history, as change has happened, it is often driven by artists. They get mad and they make change and they make art that reflects their anger. And people view it and they ask questions and they learn something new about culture and history. And that's thrilling. So, you know, if we get to do that every day for 14 years, it's, it's a wonderful gift. That's an amazing insight. Yeah. So what's, um, tell me some good news that is happening in the museum field right now. <sighs> good news. Apart from um, of creation of art for the next 10 years, what is happening right now that is good in the field of museum PR? Um, let's see. There are a couple things. One is um, in, in thinking about the last 20 years in museums, I, and this is my observation, I don't know that the field would say this is true, but this is Lynette's opinion. Um, when I started working in museums, it seemed as though there were the staff people who studied and cared for art, and there were the staff people that educated about art. So you had your basically your curators and your educators. 
And they right. all did their things and their things were very important, but there wasn't a tremendous amount of overlap. Right. And in that 20 years, I think that has melted together in a way that benefits everyone, the visitor, the scholars, the educators, um, so much so that many museums now have a curator of education. I mean, that's how far the, the mixing has come. And the art is cared for and studied and all of the academic rigor that is so important to art historians still happens. And the desire to have people learn about art or create art that is in the heart and the blood and the soul of educators still happens. Um, but it's much more uh, integrated, I think, than it used to be. And it, and it used to be in silos. And so that, I think, is good news uh, for museum goers and for museums. It helps people to feel connected to the collection. Um, I think also, um, again, this is my opinion, uh, there was a radical shift in the museum world maybe 10 years ago. And I think the train left the station on the museum world. And there were directors and staff that were on the train of change and they're moving down the tracks. And there were directors and curators and staff that said, oh, there's a change happening. I better chase that train. And they ran down the tracks. And there were people that were still sort of back at the station um, sipping Chardonnay and, and, and not paying attention to what was happening. And now over those years, um, I think the people that were on the train are in great shape. I think the people that chase the train, that realize that change is happening, I need to get on that train, they're in great shape. But the people back at the station who are just now figuring out that 10 years ago there was a change, um, it's, it's hard. Um, because the, the, the momentum has happened and the change is boiling up and it's good and it's exciting and it was needed. Um, and so it's exciting for the people that were on the train and the people that chased it and hopped on. Um, so I think there's a lot of exciting news in the museum world. And for us as PR professionals, it is an endless bounty of stories to tell. We are professional storytellers. And so... Right we can look across our museums and say, even during this pandemic when they're closed and find the most fascinating stories. We do work with the uh, Fralin Museum of Art at the University of Virginia. Right. And I uh, sat in on a presentation that their director did for some donors, which we do, you know, just see what's going on. And he was talking about a story that, um, he was talking about a program that they had within the university where uh, they were supporting uh, colleagues across the university in medicine and ethics and humanities um, and, and working on art and literature surrounding plagues. Right. And I thought that is fascinating. Like, I wanna know more about that. So after the call, I said, this sounds like a story. Can you tell me more about it? And uh, Sarah, who works on that account for Blue Water, doggedly, um, put that pitch together and interviewed the people that are involved at the university and at the museum and pitched that story. And we've had two tremendous hits from it, um, including a great blog post that um, the person at the Freyland, Jordan, um, who's in charge of that, um, wrote this blog and it's incredible. And that's, um, you can find it on AAM's um, website. So it's, it's really, a matter for us of finding those stories and pitching them. We had a great NPR hit for the Dali Museum in St. Petersburg, Florida, about their digital initiatives. They have this tremendous Midnight in Paris exhibition that heartbreakingly uh, didn't get its full run, but they really did a great job of being able to have people see that exhibition digitally. Awesome. So the stories are there, we just have to find them. And they might, and I'm assuming there'll be loads and loads of stories. Ah, it's endless. Um, so, you know, during this time, um, museums are still acquiring art. They're still buying art. And so we've been working with the Toledo Museum of Art on this tremendous quilt that they purchased um, by an artist named Lisa Butler. And it's uh, a quilt of Frederick Douglass. And it's 
just stunning. So, you know, the stories are there. They're just different stories than we traditionally have told. We, we, have, we have pushed exhibitions and programs. And, and so we, and we work 12, 18 months out because a lot of the art media that we work with, they're on very long leads. So our whole structure of pitching has kind of crumbled down because we don't know what will happen in 18 months right now. Um, but the stories are still there. Museums make magic. I, I am just so impressed. Not, you know, they're not even open and they are just producing incredible content and, and beautiful stories. So they really, they inspire us every day. I'm, I mean, they've done an uh, incredible job about it. Uh, we do keep reading a lot about, you know, museum tours, digital tours that are being offered. And it's, I think they've gotten a new lease of life with the digital jump they've made. And it's not just restricted to a certain geography. Now it's world over. Right. And I believe that now that they have the infrastructure in place to do these things, that will become part of their ongoing programming. I don't see them stopping. This will be something that they always do now. They'll look for a way to have the digital presence for everything that they do. So that will be um, a good outcome of this very difficult time. Correct. I hope they do continue. So uh, I'm, I'm intrigued. Uh, what, what is the typical lead time for a story that you look at pitching for, let's say, an upcoming exhibition in a museum? This will be this will be surprising. Um, we like a solid year, uh, which is a lot. Yeah. Um, and our what? and our clients a year. Our clients are amazing. When we work with a new client and we say, "Yeah, we need a year to work on this." Um, there's oh a year. Um, but once we work with them for a while and they get used to that timeline, uh, they see the benefits of it. So what happens is about a year out we will send an alert saying, and we don't need a lot for the alert. We need a couple paragraphs saying, these are the dates that this exhibition is going to be open. Um, here's what the exhibition, this is the, the new information that will be revealed by this exhibition or a new artist. There's something, there's a reason they're doing the exhibition. So, you know, why are they doing it? When is it happening? Really a quick alert. Um, so that we can get on the planning radar of the arts media. They work a long way out. We have pitched stories for 12, 18 months before. Um, and then we do, um, at Blue Water Communications, we do a, a media tour twice a year, usually in the spring and the fall. This year our spring tour was disrupted by COVID. Um, and we go to New York and sit down with the arts editors and lay out what's coming up for our clients for the next year um, so that they can start to slot it into their calendars because, um, you know, they're, they're covering museums all over the world and right. trying to get them interested in something that may be happening in Norfolk, Virginia or Toledo, Ohio or Columbus, Ohio. Um, so we really need to... Um, based on geography, work even harder on behalf of our clients. Right. Um, we, I have to say, uh, the team at Blue Water, man, they can pitch a story like people I have never seen. Um, and so, you know, given the material and given some time and that media tour and the opportunity to sit down with the media, we have tremendous success on behalf of our clients. Um, but if the client gives us a month, it's hard because you know planning has already happened. Yeah. So, what has been you know one of let's say what comes to mind when I ask you about uh, the best project that you've ever worked on? Ah, um, boy, that's really hard because I I fall in love with every single thing that we work on, and and the staff does too. If I had to pick one. I would pick the opening of Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. Uh, we worked on that in 2011. At the right. time, it was uh, the first new Museum of American Art to open in the United States in 50 years. It is tremendous. It's five years of American art. It is in the Ozark Mountains in the northwest corner of Arkansas, which is in the middle of our country, uh, sort of the middle and down a little bit. and. 
It's nestled in this ravine. It's built over water. It's in the woods. It's architecturally jaw-dropping. And there's hiking trails that surround it. And the collection is stunning. And we worked on that project. And the strategy was challenging because um, I don't know if it is the same for you in India, but sometimes when we pitch a story that is not happening in a major city, um, it's hard to get media attention. And Northwest Arkansas is very far from the centers of the arts media, which tend to be in New York and LA, Los Angeles. So um, our strategy and our challenge was to overcome the preconceived notion that this museum in Arkansas was not spectacular. So what we decided was um, when we went there as Blue Water and looked around, this is the most incredible thing possible. What we need to do is get the media here, not you know, tell them about it in a press kit or press releases or even you know, electronically. We need them on the ground. We need them to see what is happening here. So we did. We had um, a tour for arts media about nine months before the museum opened. So it was an active construction site. It was a mess. It poured down rain. There was mud. Um, they had to wear hard hats. They had to wear boots. Um, it was a challenge and they fell in love. You can't go there. I challenge a human to go to this museum and not fall in love. And so wow. um, it was such a tremendous success. And now the museum next year will celebrate its 10th birthday. And their, their attendance, um, I don't want to misstate, but it is huge. It is, it is one of the most heavily attended museums in the country now. Um, and the collection continues to grow and they are doing educational programs that inspire other museums. And they have a commitment to bringing um, the next generation of museum professionals along. And so it's, you know, when I think about um, the projects that I've worked on um, at Blue Water that will, forever change me and I think change the field that one really jumps out awesome so is that one of your favorite uh, museum clients or do you have another favorite um we worked with them for one year and so uh we really just worked with them for the opening they remain friends of ours we communicate with them frequently and the best part of crystal bridges was uh we met amber who works at blue water and is the vice president uh we met her at Crystal Bridges, and she's now worked for Blue Water for 2000, since 2012. Um, so, we, you know, that's part of the reason we hold them so closely in our hearts is we got Amber from them. <laughs> um, let's see, other, they're all amazing. Every single one of them. It's like trying to pick your favorite child or your favorite pet. Um, they're also incredible, and they're also different. If I said, you know, which one is in my heart, it would be Toledo Museum of Art because that's where I worked and they put me on this path that ends with me talking to you today. Without Toledo Museum of Art, I'm not sitting here today. Um, so they have my heart. Um, the University of Michigan Museum of Art was one of the first architectural projects we worked on. We worked on that in, uh, I guess maybe we started in about 2007 and it opened in 2009, a new wing. So that has a part of my heart. Um, the Freeland Museum of Art in Virginia has a part of my art because, heart because I, um, I just like the town and the university setting and I like the exciting things they're doing. They've made a commitment for the next five years that their special exhibitions will feature, um, that half their special exhibitions will feature underrepresented artists. So um, that's exciting. Um, Princeton University Art Museum, I go there and I am just blown away by their collection. You walk in and you see this amazing Frank Stella. It just, the colors just knock your eyes out and it's just incredible. And 
You can go to the Columbus Museum of Art and, and they have this candle Wiley that when I see it, I, I feel like it takes the air out of my lungs. It's so magnificent. So it's just everywhere I travel, I get excited about what I get to see. Um, some of our museums, uh, we have two museums that have incredible collections of glass, um, the Chrysler Museum of Art in Norfolk, Virginia, and the Toledo Museum of Art um, are considered some of the best glass collections in the country. And in both right. of you can watch people make glass, which is endlessly fascinating. Um, glass blowers are incredible. And to watch them and to be in that space is is inspiring. So I could, you know, I love them all. So any particular one uh, museum, right, on a global level that you would like to go and oh, visit? That I haven't been to? Yeah. Um, oh, that's a great question. I've been to a lot of museums in North America um, and a lot of museums in Europe. I've never been to a museum in India, so maybe someday uh, you could take me and show me your favorite. Um, Would love to. As a visitor... The museums I've been to that that are not clients um, that have just left an impression on me are usually museums that I find by accident that I uh, have some sense of wonder about. It's it's fun to be a tourist. Um, I was in London for our PRBI conference, our PR Boutiques International Conference, in I don't know 2015 maybe. And I was walking with my husband, Dave, and we were passing through a neighborhood, just going from point A to point B. And I'm looking at my map, and I see there's a, a thing called the Wallace Collection on my map. And I don't know what that is. But it's called a collection, so I assume it's a museum. And it's a half a block away. So I go, ah, let's go. And it was, you know, it's been five years, and I'm still talking about it. It's this incredible collection. It's in this amazing house. It has this great gallery that just is jaw-dropping. It has an incredible collection of armor. We had tea in the courtyard. And I wasn't expecting it. I didn't plan to go there. I didn't know about it. And that is my personal favorite kind of museum experience. Um, I hopped off a cruise ship in Nassau in the Bahamas once and went to... You're just walking, 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 and went to the National, I'm going to get the name wrong, but it was like the National Museum of Bahamian Art. And um, it's also in the house, and it's quite small, and right. it's stunning. I went in, I like to be told a story. So when I go to a museum, I either want a docent or I want labels that tell me a story. And so I went to this museum. It was very hot outside. Mostly I was just happy to get air conditioning for $8. Um, and I'm like, oh, two hours of air conditioning, I'll take it. Um, okay. It was incredible. And it changed me because I learned about what artists from Bahamas are reacting to. I didn't know anything about it. Um, I learned about their pain. I learned about their love. I learned about their culture. I learned about their history. Um, I got so much more than my $8 worth of air conditioning that I went in there to get. I had a great engagement with the people that worked there. And I bought a painting from a local artist in their gift shop and brought it home on the cruise ship that hangs in my bedroom. So that, you know, these experiences at museums are why people go to museums. And it's great when you work in the field to, to have that engagement you know, kind of at a small scale. You know, I've been to the giant museums, but sometimes the small ones really catch my imagination. True. And I think the best uh, ones are always, you know, the best discoveries are always the ones that are not planned. Right, right. And I think as a, as a human, if you can be open to that, if you can mm -hmm. say, I'm going to go to this museum and whatever they've got going on, I'm going to learn about it. Um, That's it. You might discover something that you never knew would be interesting. Toledo's um, got this incredible collection of something called Metzke. They're about the size of an egg, sometimes smaller. Um, they are carved and they were used um, to as part of a kimono. And um, I'm going to not get all the details correct. 
but intricately carved, often made of wood or ivory. Um, not necessarily something I thought would excite me. They did an exhibition of them and I couldn't leave the room. It was so fascinating. Um, tiny, tiny little items and they would put um, tobacco in them or small little items and fasten them to the side of their kimono. So um, there is so much in the world to see and so many cultures create exquisite art and the stories that go with them. I feel like I could do this till I draw my last breath and not learn half what there is to know. And I'm not an art historian. I'm just a lay person who tells stories. So. No, but it's awesome to have people like you in the business who can at least, you know, who can communicate to the rest of the audience that such a world exists, right? Otherwise, it's usually, uh, I think there is only a certain kind of person who would go to a museum. Right. Uh, I think it needs people like you to be able to tell all the others that, you know, it has something for everyone. Yeah. So I'm assuming, uh, you know, like all over the world, uh, the pandemic would have disrupted your industry as well. Mm -hmm. uh, what, how do you see the industry changing in the next three to five years? What has been the biggest disruption that has happened in your vertical? Ah, uh, that is a very hard question. Um, as I said earlier, we at, at Blue Water Communications, we are planners. Um, we thrive by planning. And so we've got charts and graphs and we've planned, you know, what's happening in the next six months, 12 months, 18 months, five years. We do strategic planning for clients. Those are five-year plans. And I feel like everything we have planned and everything that our clients have planned um, has been put in a blender and we just don't know what's going to come out. So um, I think that's the hardest thing in our vertical is that um, we have pushed our clients to plan and they have graciously agreed so that we can do our best. Um, but I don't know how to look right now into October. Um, I... I don't know what is after July 31st. I don't know what's going to happen next week. I don't know if a governor of one of our 11 states that we work in will decide to shut things down again. Um, so I think for our vertical of museums and architecture and performing arts and destinations, it is viciously challenging. If you're at all linked to tourism, like our clients um, in Kissimmee, um, it is a very challenging time because people are not traveling the way they were. However, people are driving more than they used to. So Kissimmee's seeing an uptick in driving travel and less flying travel, and that will come. Um, our clients like Selby Gardens, Botanical Garden, you can go there and you could be outdoors. Um, some of our clients have sculpture gardens. And so that's an outdoor experience that people who maybe don't feel comfortable being indoors can still engage with an art collection and be outside, have a picnic on the lawn. Um, probably a third of our clients are affiliated with universities. Uh, we have the Children's Museum of Art at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Princeton University Art Museum in New Jersey, the Fulham, as I mentioned, in Virginia. Um, I'm going to forget one of our university clients, so forgive me if I did. Um, so because they are embedded in universities, um, their decision-making is also impacted at the university level. So the Chatham Museum of Art is open now. Um, and it's just challenging across the board. So I think that's the challenge in our vertical is that we are planners and our museums are planners. They have exhibitions on their schedules that have been there for years. Large right. exhibitions, and I think people don't realize this sometimes, they can be five years in the planning. You've got to organize loans, you've got to organize insurance for the loans and transportation. Um, so we don't know. Will exhibitions open in the fall? Gosh, we hope so. Um, but we don't know. And so it makes it really challenging to pitch some of this long lead media. So we're looking for stories that are 
less time sensitive, more industry focused, um, relying on our experts and um, trying to do our best to tell stories. But the planning, that's the, been the challenge. That's the thing that, you know, that is going to be disruptive for the next five years is we have lost from March to whenever in the planning cycle. And it's going to be hard to come back up again, but we can do it. I think that's really one of the things we at Blue Water that we bring to the table is we are strategists. And mm -hmm. I think it is tempting to live in the tactics because the tactics are fun. I mean, that the, the fun is in the tactics. The fun is not in the strategy. Um, but the strategy is the secret to us. It's what makes us great. It's what makes our clients successful. And so um, I think the principles that we talk about in the title of our little chat today, that's one of them, is the principles remain the same. Mm -hmm. We have learned over this time that our clients are frightened and they are anxious and they're worried and they're financially being just really impacted. Um, and we have to say, we understand all of that, but the principles of public relations have not changed. The right. storm that we are currently in is a new storm, but the principles remain the same. And so I think if a client in any industry is tempted to do something that is out of character for them because right. of the pandemic, they should examine that because the principles of PR do not change. We're in a different storm, but the principles right. are you know, they're foundational and they shouldn't change. So um, I think that's maybe a message across all industries. So what yours as well? Sorry? Do you find that to be true in your clients as well? Uh, pretty much. I think the, uh, you know, the basic rules will remain the same. Yeah. Uh, and the basic uh, developments or the basic changes or the basic principles that we all uh, plan with uh, you know, plan our campaigns, plan our PR programs with will all remain the same world over. So I want to understand from you, you know, what are your guiding principles when, you know, you've been in the industry for almost two decades now? Oh, it makes me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure you've met, uh, you know, every kind of client, team member or audience out there, right? So what has been your guiding principle? Um, I think for myself personally and for Blue Water and for the team at Blue Water, and I can and feel comfortable speaking on behalf of all of us, um, our principles are really based in a very strong ethical foundation. So one of right. the things that we do with new clients is uh, give them a copy of the Public Relations Society of America Code of Ethics. And that is part of our letter of agreement with a new client is this is the code of ethics by which we do our business and we will not break it, period. We won't bend it. We won't stretch it. We won't give it a wink. We're, we, we are extremely ethical in what we do. And we have to be because all that we have to sell is our reputation and the reputation of our clients. So we will not lie on behalf of our clients. Um, and these things are laid out in that code of ethics. Um, we won't do questionable behavior on behalf of our clients. That's not the kind of business that we're in. So that means that we have had to make um, some very difficult decisions over the years. Um, and those principles that you ask about, um, they can't quiver. So we had to resign a client very early in Blue Water's history, uh, maybe a couple years in. And um, it was an ethical problem and the, we had to resign. We had to say, we can't work with you. Um, and I will be honest with you, it was at a time when we needed the money badly. And um, to make that decision was challenging. And I remember at the time I called the ethics chair for Public Relations Society of America, PRSA, and um, said, look, this is the situation. I think we're going to have to resign the account. And they're like, yeah, you're going to have to resign the account. Um, yeah. And we did. And I will tell you that over 14 years at Blue Water, we have had to make excruciatingly difficult decisions on behalf of our clients, in advising our clients. And right. if you stick to the 
ethical course, you are never wrong. It's painful sometimes. It doesn't feel good, but you're never wrong. It's never wrong to do the right thing, I guess is what I'm saying. And so part of what I think our clients come to us to get is for us to tell them difficult things. And our clients are amazing. Um, But they have a lot of people. Museum people are very engaging and they're very interesting. And they draw, you know, the donors support them. And they have this crowd of people around them that think they're amazing. Um, And they are amazing. But sometimes we're the ones that have to say difficult things. And that's what they pay us for. And they don't like it sometimes. Mm -hmm. But they always respect it. And when we say, you, you know, here's what our advice is. It's difficult, but this is the road that you have to take. Um, It has never come back to us as the wrong thing to do. And I think that's one of our principles. And I think um, going back to resigning accounts, um, if the only reason you're doing something is for money, it is generally not the right thing to do. And, And we come back to that over and over again. Like, why are we doing this? And if the answer is, Ah, the, the money's great. Um, it's not the right thing to do. And we know that. And then we have to go, ugh, this is the right thing. Um, so what has been the most ethical decision that you've taken as an agency owner? I think it was resigning that account. It was really difficult. Um, and if I move beyond that, um, oh, I have a good story that ties back to PR Boutiques International. The first conference I went to was in 2014. It was in Portland. Oregon. Um, And I had just joined PRBI. And at that time, we were half in our niche of museums, architecture, performing arts destinations, and half other clients. And there was a mixture of other clients, and they were interesting work, but they were not in our area of expertise. And so I went to PRBI and um, part of what we do is look at each other's businesses. And it's hard because when you create a business, um, it is difficult to have somebody look at your baby and tell you that it's ugly. And I went to that conference and one of our members um, looked at my baby and said it was ugly. <laughs> and, and, and the piece that I needed was, Lynette, you've got half this area of expertise and half these other things. You need to get rid of the other things and go all in. Because if you do, the clients will see your investment. And um, I thought about it. And I came back and I talked it over with the team. And it meant rec- it meant resigning half our business. And they were great clients. Um, and, and one of them was quite large. And um, that's what we did. We said, um, you know, we love working with you. Uh, we're going to give you 90 days. But we're taking a different path. And this path is museums, architecture, performing arts, and destinations. And if right. you don't fit in there, uh, we're going to have to say goodbye. And that's what we did. And it was the trajectory that moved Blue Water forward. So I think as a business owner, that was the hardest decision I made, but it was also the best decision I made. Um, Because when you sit down with a museum director in a new business situation and say, look, this is what we do. This is what we do all day, every day. We have seen everything you can imagine and we know how to propel your institution forward, um, it's really impactful. And I I think um, it's interesting that this, you know, realization came about uh, at PRBI, uh, the the two AGMs as of now. And every time I attend one, I come back with so many new ideas, so many new perspectives. Uh, Right. Uh, So you just assumed presidency of PRBI, right? And it's been a difficult time, I think, for all of us. So what are your plans for the network? Um, Well, I should ask you what your plans for the network are, (laughs) because we're a team. Um, We have a tremendous group of people that are members of PRBT International. Um, We have over 40 members in, um, I think I did the math, I think it's 12 countries, Um, might be 14 countries. So uh, it's just, uh, it's a small, intimate, really smart group of people, and they all own agencies. And the agencies, a boutique agency, if you're wondering what that word means in the name of the organization, it basically means um, an agency that has 
picked an area of expertise that operates in a really maybe specific space. Um, and you get an interaction with the principals of the firm. So, you know, a firm that has 400 employees all over the world um, may have its advantages, um, but one of them is not access to the person in charge. Um, but for your business, for my business, for um, our member agency in uh, Dusseldorf, if you engage them, you engage with the owner, the vice president, the senior account supervisor, you're getting this high level, uh, top tier, super experienced engagement. And I think that's why people hire our member agencies. We collaborate. So I will tell you, um, our, as you know, we get together once a year in person and we were supposed to be together in Amsterdam in June and we had to cancel our uh, general meeting because of COVID. And it was a devastating decision, but we all got on the phone together and we had one of our Zoom meetings and it was one of the most memorable experiences of my life to be on the phone with people all over the world and we're all experiencing the same thing at the same time. That's never happened to me. So usually with our members, you know, we're reaching out to be supportive because, you know, a hurricane's heading towards Florida and we have two members in Florida, or there's wildfires in the West Coast or in New Zealand or Australia, and we're worried about them. You know, we're always trying to support one another, but this is the first time where we have been in the same storm at the same time. And we all got on the phone and, and it directly impacted our members. Um, and it moved around the world. So it started at our members in Europe um, and they were starting to close down and there was members of their teams that that got the virus and recovered. And, and, and so it just swept through our membership and it was, um, it was, it meant so much to me as a member to know that I could reach out to you and you were experiencing the exact same thing at the same moment and we are literally a world apart. Right. Um, so I think for our membership, as we look to grow PRBI, which is something that you and I and, and all of our members think is important, um, we offer a lot. We offer educational opportunities. We offer camaraderie. We offer um, honesty. I have never had professional honesty like I have with this organization. I have bared my soul and all of the mistakes that I've made to this organization so that we can learn from each other. Um, and that's my favorite thing. So um, I think as I take over uh, the reins from Amanda, our previous president, who did a great job, um, my goals are just to grow and to engage, to make sure that our members are all involved in whatever way makes the most sense for them. And Thanks. then there's the things that you don't expect. I got a call a couple of weeks ago from a member who's pitching a piece of business and wanted us to be involved with them. Um, and that's great, but it's not why I do it. Um, I don't look to PRBI as a new business channel, but it's surprising how often that happens. So um, it's just a tremendous organization and getting to know people like you has been priceless for me. Awesome, thank you. Uh, so I think yeah, the next year is going to be fabulous. Uh, I'm sure we'll see a lot of growth and a lot of engagement happening amongst all our uh, PRBI members. So we are running out of time. Uh, last question. How did that happen? It went so quickly. <laughs> We've actually shot over an hour and a minute now. So. Uh, last question. If you were not in PR and not do water communications, what would you be doing at this point? Ah, that's interesting. Um, I have my dream job, so it's it's hard to think of anything else. But I think if I did something else, it might be architecture. Um, I have discovered along the way that I am fascinated by architecture and I would love to study it formally. Um, I don't want to be an architect. I don't want to build building. I would like to study architecture. I would love to be an architectural historian. Um, who knows? I might, for now, that takes the form of every time I go on vacation, I get a book and do some architectural walking tour. And uh, that satisfies that need. But um, yeah, it is sort of a passion of mine. I really enjoy it. 
Awesome. So that will be another new profession that you would have invented. <laughs> I don't think so. I think it'll be more of a hobby. Awesome. Well, uh, there's still lots of time. Uh, you never know. Yeah, that's true. Life has surprised me so far. Gosh, only knows what uh, what could be next. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, we'll close our session for today. Thank right? you so much, Karenjeet. Uh, so uh, that was Lynette for you. Um, we will be back very soon with our next session. So don't forget to keep logging in and check our website out as well. We're also present on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, go there, take a look at our pages uh, for more content, more interesting ideas, and uh, you know what all our member agencies are doing from across the world. So we'll catch you next on our next live.